Don't know a soul who's not been battered I don't have a friend who feels at ease I don't know a dream that's not been shattered Or driven to its knees Oh, but it's all right It's all right For we lived so well so long Still when I think of the road we're traveling on I wonder what's gone wrong I can't help it, I wonder what's gone wrong Let me tell the story that I need to tell today uh, so we're going to begin with a little sneak preview of the future that this narrative is heading towards and say a little bit about, uh, America and how people talked about its discovery. So in the, uh, you know, there's this experience that begins in uh, 1409, where Western Europe suddenly, Western European Christianity begins this dramatic outward expansion uh, into the Atlantic world. Uh, and that's leavened by the fact that um, uh, Portugal has profited from political instability in Spain, both through the emigration of Jews and Muslims, um, but mainly Jews uh, into, uh, into Portugal. And uh, so while Spain is continuing to prosecute the Reconquista, the Portuguese begin looking elsewhere. And the, there, this isn't really a story about that, but it's important to note that when the Portuguese begin exploring the Atlantic, they already have a set of expectations and an agenda. They believe that their purpose is in um, circumnavigating Africa so that they can reach the kingdom of Prester John, the legendary Christian kingdom that is going to come to the aid of Christendom and turn the tide. And that narrative gains in power following the fall of Constantinople in 1453. But there are other things that uh, Europeans expect to see in the ocean. There's a whole literary genre in the Celtic world of um, the St. Brendan stories, the uh, Mild Winds stories, even the first King Arthur story. Um, are stories of these magical islands in the, uh, in the North Atlantic Ocean that are hard to find. Uh, and in the Hispanic world, in the or Lusa Hispanic world, uh, the idea is that when the Muslims conquered the Iberian Peninsula in the eighth century, the Bishop of Oporto and King Don Rodrigo, the last Visigothic king, fled to this place called Antilla, this archipelago in the Atlantic, where they set up these holy cities uh, and guarded uh, the relics of Christendom, like the Grail, which was supposed to be out there. So 
uh, Europeans, when they set out, had expectations derived from their own culture, their own mythologies. And uh, some of those expectations were fulfilled, some were dashed. When they got to the New World, of course, there was a dispute about whether they had arrived in the New World. The person who organized the expedition, Christopher Columbus, went to his grave believing that the New World did not exist and insisting that they had landed in the southern part of the Philippine archipelago. It was a belief he never renounced, despite being recalled to Europe twice for misgovernment in the Caribbean. Now, the Caribbean in many ways was continuous with what the Spanish and Portuguese had found on the other side of the Atlantic. The Portuguese had arrived in the Azores, which were uninhabited, uh, Madeira, which was uninhabited. They had clear cut those islands and, develop, and obtained much of the building materials necessary to expand their fleets to continue their Atlantic voyage. They also began planting sugarcane there. And then in 1420, the Spanish had discovered the Canary Islands, populated by a group of uh, Berber migrants who had lost their literacy over time, but had developed a distinctive way of communicating by whistling. Um, the, uh, the people of the Canaries were Stone Age people. They were subject to... Um, uh, epidemic disease, and they were ruthlessly enslaved by the Spanish to do placer gold mining, first on the Canaries, and then they were moved to the Azores to uh, work with African slaves on sugar plantations, uh, which also is what they did in Madeira. Arriving in the Caribbean and meeting the Arawak people seemed to the Spanish very much continuous with this experience of meeting insular people um, who they could easily dominate. Amerigo Vespucci has the Americas named after him, not just because he was Columbus's navigator, but uh, because he admitted they were the Americas. Uh, Vespucci undertook a number of voyages following um, the Spanish setting up placer gold mining and sugar plantations in the Caribbean. And these voyages um, were the subject of letters. Uh, Vespucci was a great writer. He had a tremendous descriptive flair. And he began sending letters back of extraordinary things that he had seen. Uh, cannibalism was a practice of the uh, Tupi people of Northwestern Brazil and of the Carib people of the um, Southern Caribbean islands. And uh, so there were stories of cannibalism. People didn't wear a lot of clothes. That was very interesting. And then there were all these strange animals to explain. And uh, so there were different theories to explain why people wore so much less clothing, why there was uh, more cannibalism, uh, not more human sacrifice, but more cannibalism, um, and why there were strange animals like the armadillo. And competing theories arose. One was that the Western Hemisphere was Lucifer's hemisphere, that um, it was 
in the medieval sense of the word, a counterfeit of the Eastern hemisphere. A counterfeit in medieval terms did not mean a thing you couldn't distinguish from the original. It meant Lucifer's mockery of the original. So obviously an armadillo is a counterfeit turtle. Uh, obviously Tenochtitlan was a counterfeit Rome. And Lucifer mocked Europe in different ways, right? Armadillos um, were strangely resilient. It was upsetting how much cleaner and more orderly and less corrupt and how much larger Tenochtitlan was than Rome, given that it was the Lucifer's holy city with the big sacrifice pyramid in the center. So that was one tendency intellectually. Another tendency was to think that um, this was the prelapsarian world, that people there were in an Edenic state and were not subject to original sin. And that is why they wore so little clothing and seemed unembarrassed by their nakedness. That was proof that they could not possibly be subject to original sin because that's where that shame was understood to originate from. So there was an idealistic image. There was a uh, satanic image. And then we have to remember that the Americas are being discovered largely coincidentally during the scientific revolution. And one of the ideologies of the scientific revolution is something called humanism. This idea that natural is a different category than holy. And this was part of a change that was going on in sciences at the time. The category supernatural was coming into being. There didn't used to be a category called supernatural. God was part of nature. His angels were part of nature. The human soul was part of nature. Uh, and some religions um, right, maintain those beliefs. Uh, Sikhs and Mormons in particular um, uh, hold that uh, there is no supernature. There is only nature. Uh, the humanists were Christians in terms of their religious observances, but they became interested in exploring this category called nature. And what they, what they suggested to explain America was that it wasn't so much that they were seeing human beings in their Edenic state, they were seeing human beings in their natural state. Now, the thing about Amerigo Vespucci's letters is that they sold really well. This is the age the printing press is getting going. And people were eager to purchase new dispatches from the new world, so eager that uh, people in Europe began writing Amerigo Vespucci letters. Uh, writing Amerigo Vespucci letters was a, um, was a good source of money. Um, you, could, uh, you could turn decent coin if you had a press and a way with words. Uh, you too could give accounts of the new world. And so in this way, the new world becomes a canvas on which to paint one's idea of nature. Because for most Europeans who are expressing these opinions, the existence of America is not so much a new bunch of data. 
it is an invitation to theorize in a new way. Uh, there are so many conflicting accounts. The accounts are bizarre. It's easy to dismiss factual accounts and um, recognize non-factual ones. There's, um, and so the Americas become this way of talking about, um, uh, about what is natural for human beings. And uh, this forms really the foundations of what we might call proto-anthropology. Anthropology, of course, as a field was invented on the northwest coast of British Columbia by the German linguist Franz Boas uh, in the 1880s. Uh, that's where anthropology comes from. But this idea of speculating about the earliest preliterate forms of human society uh, really took off with the Americas as this intellectual blank canvas. And this then formed the basis of a new way of talking politics. One that um, funnily enough was alive and well when I was in my teens and uh, is gasping for breath today. It used to be that in order to have an analysis on the left, you either had to agree to someone else's theory of the origins of human civilization, or you had to make up your own. That what begins to happen with the rise of, with the beginnings, the first whispers of liberalism in the, in the 1600s, is this idea that we can reason about how we should live by knowing how we did live. And so the justifying discourse in political economy becomes the state of nature. However you describe the state of nature, the original human state, that's how you build your argument about how we are to live today. Uh, so in, when I was in the Green Party in the 80s, um, the ecofeminists, the deep ecologists, the social ecologists, and the bioregionalists, the four ideological fractions in green politics, each had their own state of nature story. And they used that to explain how they thought. And of course, they were trained to do this because they were up against Marxists who had a state of nature story. Well, one of the earliest state of nature stories used to justify political order is Thomas Hobbes' Leviathan, in which he describes the state of nature as Michael has typed, as nasty, brutish, and short. Now, Thomas Hobbes was in some ways very accurate in his descriptions of this state that we're trying to avoid, that we're trying to create a social contract to get past, except that, oh dear, can you guys hear me? Uh, are we, am I break, okay, I'm not breaking up. All right, so um, Hobbes, uh, with the state of nature, I'm sorry, I'm gonna have to turn off my video because uh, my machine's being cruel. Just a second here. Um, stop video. Okay, 
Uh, no, you're anyway, great, I'm gonna... Stuart, and your your video is good. Your audio is good. Okay, good. Everything's uh, so it's good. just it's just what's being delivered to my screen. All uh, right. So um, anyway, the state of nature of Thomas Hobbes. Hobbes has this idea that um, uh, life was nasty, brutish, and short. That essentially you fall out of the womb into the woods, you land there, and you're fighting everyone else, and you're beating each other over the head for each other's yams. Uh, and that that's that's the base. That's how human civilization starts. It, 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 he calls it the war of all against all, or you know, the experience of trying to find dry erase markers when teaching at a polytechnic on the first day of term. Uh, in any case, where everybody is in competition with everyone else and um, people will go to any lengths. Now, Thomas Hobbes was describing a very real thing. He was describing the English Civil War that he had lived through. Uh, a period, an unprecedented level of mobilization in English society took place for this civil war. Um, the factions and the war were not merely those who were required to fight. Uh, all sorts of people got involved on an ideological basis and they went through a brutally destructive period of time. It's very clear that this is uppermost in Hobbes's mind when he describes the state of nature. And he explains what's gone wrong. What's gone wrong is that the state lost its monopoly on violence, or rather it never properly enforced a monopoly on violence. So the thing that was deficient about the old monarchical state was that every honorable man had the capacity to mete out violence and should do that um, to discipline his inferiors and keep social order. That was the social contract of the Baroque world. Um, and in many ways that social contract survives in certain places like the Southern United States. Uh, so this idea was that, uh, well, we have to find the person with the biggest gang give him all of the weapons, all of the troops, and then he can maintain order. He can create the state. And the other thing that Thomas Hobbes talks about is the idea of the state as a thing independent from a king ruling. Hobbes gives us this new optic for thinking about the state not as a person ruling, but as a bunch of institutions and social infrastructure that's needed to run society. He even incorporates into his idea of the state physical infrastructure like roads. So the idea is that the state has the commons. It needs a violence monopoly in order to guard the commons and, that and the maintenance of that violence monopoly, the maintenance of peace is the function of the state and it's, the categorical imperative. Now, with, with Hobbes setting up the idea of a state of nature, this is then an opener for other theorists to talk about their idea of a liberal state. John Locke, jurist who's asked to, um, uh, to write up some new world constitutions gets in on the idea. 
And he suggests that while Hobbes is largely right about the state of nature, the state of nature is a little more cooperative than all that. That it's not only force that make human beings want to get together. Um, there are some centripetal characteristics to human society. But nevertheless, the only way the state can come into being and the only way order can come into being is through a social contract between the ruled and the ruler. And that contract then is the thing that the state of nature doesn't have. But there are all these signs that as human beings advance in a state of nature, they will make that contract so that they can advance further. And then we go to, along to Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who talks about um, uh, the state of nature again in a more romanticized sense. But again, the idea that we have that Rousseau, I think, is really leaning into the way that people read the state of nature with their Bible, right? So Rousseau imagines that we lived in this Edenic state but we're fallen now, so we need the social contract. We can't go back to the state of nature as beautiful and romantic as we might find it. Now, what all these guys have in common, of course, is that they do no research um, to determine what the state of nature is. They theorize what the state of nature is based on the society of their present, and the future society they would like to create. But they overwhelmingly suggest that the state of nature is in effect at the world's periphery, that, um, uh, that it was discovered in America and we can understand it by looking at America. And in that way, they tap into the very ancient tradition of Herodotus who writes with great nostalgia in the histories 2,500 years ago about at the margins of the world, there are, of course, the blameless Ethiopians who still dine with the gods. Now, what's extraordinary is that um, although you couldn't teach these states of nature, these hypothetical states of nature in an anthropology course or a primatology course or a paleontology course, you couldn't actually propound this in any field that studies early humans. We've all been taught this in political science courses. And we've been encouraged to subscribe to ideologies that are premised on what we have to term junk anthropology, discredited anthropology that is indisputably discredited and yet it remains the foundation of most mainstream political theory. So we'll come to all that when we get to America. Of course, America becomes the testing ground for liberalism. And of course that liberalism is tested, premised on these strange pre-existing beliefs about the new world. But because we're studying holy empires and not the new world per se, the real question is, well, how did early human societies arise? What were the things that brought them into being? What caused people to move into 
these early city-states. And um, of course, one of the things that you'll see from Julian James and from elsewhere is the gods. It's pretty clear that people who lived in early cities um, would largely have understood themselves to be doing so at the behest of a living God-man or at, the at his behest after he's died. Uh, those, um, that, that seems to be the case. So we look at these early agricultural despotisms that were often based around the control of irrigation. So there are these very, very high productivity areas in the world um, that are based around certain river systems. The Nile, the Yangtze, the Tigris, the Euphrates, the Congo, the Nile, the Mississippi, uh, the Amazon. These are not merely well-irrigated river systems. Each of them has special ecological features that make agricultural productivity around them go nuts. Uh, a common feature um, that we see most dramatically, well, let's talk about the Nile first. The Nile is an example of the perfect river. Uh, so lots of the Nile is navigable. That means that, especially its delta, that means that with very, very low technology, um, you can put a barge in that river and use it to move people or things at one-tenth the energy cost of moving them across land. So that's your first bonus from a river like the Nile. Oh, Lord. Uh, the, um, uh, another feature of the Nile is that it's in an incredibly arid zone. So all this water is arriving, but it's not producing days of precipitation. So you're not losing any efficiency from the sun. All of the sun's energy that could be allocated to growing crops is. You don't have problematic weather. It also means in the Nile Delta, you don't tend to have big storms and whatnot that can also slow your growing down or make it less predictable. What makes the Nile truly perfect, however, is that uh, it takes an incredible journey through incredibly rich and diverse soil types. And because it's quite soft water, it um, has very high levels of turbidity. So in the Nile, you don't have soil depletion in the Delta, or you didn't until the Aswan Dam was built. The minerals that plants would pull out of your soil would be replaced with the next year's flood. The Nile flood effectively removed the need for fertilizer, removed the need for crop rotation, all sorts of things. So not all of these rivers have all of these features, but what happens essentially when you get to one of these highly distinctive environments, whether you're in Cairo or Baghdad or on the Ganges in India, what um, 
what you see is that wealth can just be sucked out of the ground overnight. And that, um, whereas in most places, to move from a hunter-gatherer lifestyle to a horticulturalist lifestyle, you're still having to cover a lot of area. And it's not usually until one gets fairly sophisticated practices of permaculture, fertilization, et cetera, that you can actually maintain an agricultural civilization in most places. Now, in the ancient world, um, Lao Tzu emerges as an early critic of these civilizations. Uh, he's critical of the civilization on the Yangtze because of what it creates. This kind of abundance produces poverty and oppression. Because you don't have, that's the only place you have so much surplus that you can force people to work at spear point. Uh, you, you need to be able to feed so many extra people to push people around and make them, um, make them do all this extra work, all this backbreaking toil. A lot of, you know, non-sedentary societies, people move about a lot, but people are often like resting and bullshitting because they're not invested in food production during all of the daylight hours. You need force to do something like that. And so by the time, by 2,500 years ago, it was easy. You could recognize a, a rich place ecologically on site because of all of the oppression and poverty. Uh, people were less nourished in these locations because you had the resources to confiscate their stuff. And there were incentives for confiscating people's stuff because there was enough of it. But we don't see the even development of big oppressive civilizations in all of the ecologically rich places in the world. We don't see identical development. We don't see even development. We do see um, that, uh, that the Nile and uh, Mesopotamia very early on um, hit levels of political centralization that isn't seen elsewhere. Now, people are developing literacy at faster rates um, elsewhere, popular literacy. Uh, in India, popular literacy comes faster. Um, other things come slower in terms of literacy. Um, certainly in terms of math, um, it's clear that um, it's Western hemisphere civilizations that are able to do sophisticated calculations around animal breeding and genetic mixture and things like that first. Um, really, we, one of the reasons that Egypt and Mesopotamia loom so large is their ability to build authoritarian states capable of expanding and, and being more than one city-state. For a long time, the city-state is the unit, and the easiest thing to do as a city-state to grow 
is not to annex other city-states, but to exact tribute from them under threat of violence. So let's be clear, we're looking at not just the most abundant places in the world, but the most oppressive places in the world. Those that develop the social technologies to, um, to maintain large states for long periods of time. Uh, it's my view that uh, crucial, crucial to that is alcohol. Um, there are two main, I would argue that there are two things that you, uh, that you see in successful despotisms at uh, a greater density than other places. Um, sexual and physical violence towards children and alcohol. And um, these things, although they strike us as at best a mixed blessing and at worst uh, evil incarnate, um, these things are nevertheless highly effective in burnishing these early civilizations because the image, uh, so city-states are typically or often henotheistic to a degree. Now, a true henotheist system is one where a people can only worship one god. And if they worship any other god, they get in trouble. Uh, so you see a purely henotheistic system in um, uh, the kingdoms of Judea and Israel. Uh, henotheistic system uh, existing in Mecca before Muhammad. Uh, but there are also versions of that that are a little more watered down where people do have other gods, people do worship other gods, but the state has a god. And those gods are either living or dead men, typically. And one of the features of a henotheistic god is because they're so jealous, they're watching you. And one of the features we see in uh, these early despotisms is that um, you see a decline in law enforcement costs, right? You can't do everything at sword point. You can't do everything at gunpoint. You have to, if you wanna generate big enough surpluses to conquer other places, you have to create a, a society sufficiently docile that it will do what you want because it imagines that you, it's because people imagine they're going to get in trouble. They imagine that there is something looking over their shoulder. And the easiest metaphor for that is that of the parent. That children begin with an innate understanding, often false, that they're being watched all the time, watched and judged. Now, the more abusive the parent, the clearer a child's understanding of that. And so there are incentives for regular people in your society to be abusive to your kids, uh, to their kids, if you are the ruler, because that will pass benefits on to you. You are more likely to be obeyed because people, uh, because in the process of forming human beings, um, uh, there is this sense of the parent as all powerful, terrifying, 
uh, and watching you all the time. So I think that um, we, uh, so, so societies that are able to induce that kind of behavior or encourage that kind of behavior or reward that kind of behavior outcompete adjacent societies. And they also help, they do a lot of the job of creating the idea of a God, of a person who is a God. Uh, in animism, in most pre-literate religion, um, the gods are animals, the gods are mountains, the gods are waterfalls, they're things like that. Uh, even when they take on human form or are represented in human form, that's often a later textual imposition. Every time we read salmon person in a Franz Boas story of the Northwest Coast, we imagine a person who looks like, a, you know, who is salmon-like rather than a salmon as might well have been imagined, right? In societies that don't go this route, uh, people often imbue a sense of personhood into animals without anthropomorphizing them at all or placing them in some kind of metaphorical context. But if we look at the gods of the ancient Near East, they're hyperhuman, and they tend to behave like abusive parents. And they their powers and their interests are very much what would be seen through the eyes of a child. We have a child, uh, people in the ancient Near East have a child's eye view of their God. Whereas I would argue that in the Pacific Northwest here, people largely had a peer view of, of, uh, of these creatures, that um, these were things that were strange and had strange powers, but are basically like us and they're not going to ask us to kneel down and worship them, we can try and make deals with them and things like that. And we see that in the ancient world too. We see the continued existence of non-anthropomorphic gods that you make deals with. One of the longest lasting being um, the uh, uh, Sobek, the crocodile god of the Nile who controls the flood. And people continue to interact with him as equals they're making a deal with rather than as in this highly vertical way. There's a funny paradox to that, that the more human the gods people believe in, the more vertical their relationship with them. The more, when people see a god as a human, they see it as something terrifying that they must bow down towards. When people see a god as an animal or a river or something, they see it as something they can negotiate with. And we see that, um, you know, of course, there are plenty of exceptions, but that's a general pattern. So we have then this image of these ancient Near Eastern societies, and uh, we have wonderful depictions of them in uh, the Gilgamesh epic and things like that, right? And Gilgamesh is this, this uncontrolled man who, the story of the Gilgamesh epic is Gilgamesh learning the wisdom to rule the state he created with his violence. That he is described originally as a man who runs like a bull over people. And, uh, and we see then that uh, the emergence of some kind of stability. And that is because one of the first problems that a state like this has is succession planning. 
if you have this idea that the ruler is on the one hand, um, that the ruler is superhuman in the way that a child would see a parent, then what happens when the successor is, is not impressive, is not especially good with violence, is not especially good with words, um, doesn't impress? Well, the answer is that the dead man must continue ruling and that the dead man rules through his weak successors. Uh, <clears throat> and in this way, then, you can see a state like ancient Babylon as the opposite of a regency or kind of a perpetual regency that you that the kings are actually regents of the god king who is currently unavailable because he's dead but he's powerful enough that he's able to make his will known to his successors um so In this way, then, um, we can also see the importance of patriarchal lineage coming through here. How is the God doing this? He must be doing it through his blood. How am I special? Well, even though I am not a God, I am descended from gods. And this becomes a popular form of rhetoric all through the Near East and Mediterranean Basin. Almost every people, every ethnos, as the Greeks would say, um, there is an original ancestor who is a god. Uh, it, uh, and uh, you just need to go back far enough. Obviously, the Athenians are descended from Athena. Athena is descended from Zeus's head uh, and uh, so on. So I think this is one of the, so we see then that while all kinds of forms of political authority are possible, Societies that trace their origins to the way that large centralized states developed in Egypt and the Near East have this God-King heritage. And it becomes such an important heritage that it becomes an assumption throughout the civilized world. There's a set of characteristics by, the, by 600 BC that every people is supposed to have. They're supposed to have a language. They're supposed to have a lawgiver. They're supposed to have a divine ancestor. And so as these kinds of states become more hegemonic, the ethnography they practice, their ways of understanding other societies redescribe other societies in those terms. So that's one part. The other part that I think we, we have to recognize the importance of is the use of beer. Uh, beer is crucially important here. First of all, um, it's produced uh, by grains that are going off, right? So all the grains you can successfully uh, hoard or ship out have already made the cut. You now have this crap and you can, um, you've got this crap, 
and you add water to it, you add more grains to it, and you produce this kind of small beer, two to 3% alcohol by volume. Um, this is also a viscous beer that's full of um, wheat or barley, these highly proteinaceous fatty grains. And so you can feed your workforce on this crap, but also there's a surprisingly good element. The process of alcoholizing water um, kills a lot of parasites. And so we see that in society uh, that um, widespread water alcoholization produces both good and bad health outcomes. It, um, it reduces um, parasites, reduces epidemic disease, um, keeps your labor force nourished cheaply. The other thing it does, of course, is it produces a fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. Now, now, let me be clear, FASD works differently depending upon your nutritional regime. So um, the women who are most likely to drink while pregnant are upper middle class professionals in North America. Um, they also have the distinction of having very balanced diets um, that are high in key nutrients like choline that mitigate um, the effect of alcohol on a fetus. Uh, so we, uh, whereas the less nutritionally balanced your diet, the less nourished you are, the more dramatic the effects of alcohol on the brain of the fetus. You can see how that plays out in this society. You can see how that plays out in the past. You can have the powerful, wealthy people consuming the same stuff as the poor people when it comes to alcohol, provided the wealthy people have a much more nutritious, much more balanced diet. It's going to produce serious brain damage in far fewer cases. Um, in, uh, in this society, we, um, we often associate FASD with indigeneity. Um, and uh, that's, but we tend to associate it with indigeneity because we think that indigenous people drink more than us because that's a stereotype. Um, Low-income indigenous women are not heavy drinkers, but they are some of the worst nourished people in our society. They have the highest rates of malnutrition. And the further north you go, the more the indigenous diet has been interrupted and its vitamin sources have been taken out, the more dramatic the effects. In other places, there are totally different forms of malnutrition and uh, brain damage is the least of people's problems. In Ghana, it uh, mainly causes heart malformation because of a different um, nutritional situation. Now, the thing about um, FASD, it's a whole spectrum of uh, possible effects, but the primary effect it has is planning and sequencing. Uh, so people with FASD uh, score, often score very well on IQ tests um, because they know to do question 98 after question 97, it's right there. Uh, 
people who have FASD, if you give them a long list of instructions, um, they will get lost. Um, highly intelligent people, people with you know IQs 160, things like that, they um, they will get to they will complete a task, and then they'll be at C. Uh, you, um, uh, an ethnographer I knew, uh, found a way of. Um, finding undiagnosed uh, or, um, you know, passing uh, people with FASD, uh, which was to uh, cruise airport baggage claims. Airport baggage claims are a great spot for people with sequencing problems to get too disoriented and stop and not know what the next step is, especially because they don't know how the airport they're arriving at is going to be configured. And uh, so you have this, again, how is this a problem with an agricultural labor force doing backbreaking toil, raising cotton in the Nile Delta? This is a feature, not a bug for the pharaohs. This is a feature, not a bug in ancient Mesopotamia. Uh, if you have people who are perfectly intelligent but need to be reminded of what to do next, um, you've got a guy there with a spear right now. Uh, it also helps to solve, uh, thinking about this also helps to solve some paradoxes of ancient travel. A lot of people traveled in the ancient world. Surprisingly few came back. Uh, it was easy to get pulled into things. It is easy to get pulled into things. You have FASD. If somebody else who's charismatic, who, is, um, who has got a sequence of things to do, you can be pulled into it. And it's one of the reasons I maintain that parades used to be a much more powerful thing in our world. Uh, parades are great for grabbing people who have run out of instructions and turning their lives around, right? Because in the ancient world, you get to the end of the parade, maybe you sacrifice a bull, maybe you light someone on fire. Uh, something interesting is going to happen though. And then you'll all take a vow or do a prayer to explain how your life is gonna be different now. Uh, and really we see this decline in parades ending in vows and executions um, contemporaneous with um, the introduction of tea, coffee, other um, water purification methods in Europe. So there's some evidence to support this. But what I wanna describe then is um, that there's also a substance here that's being made that um, requires centralized distribution. And so water control despotisms aren't just rationing the water into your canal. They're also rationing the beer and they're rationing the bread. It's interesting, we often think that um, our image of baking bread is that everybody used to bake their own bread. Uh, and that that's, and, but that's an example of a historical fallacy we encounter again and again, which is that we take how people lived on the American frontier in the 1700s, and we pretend that that's the Middle Ages. Um, Americans in the 17 and 1800s were jacks of all trades. They had an extraordinarily um, uh, unsophisticated labor system that required everybody knowing how to do everything. Uh, but, you know, we know, what, what, what did people riot about in Rome and Constantinople? They rioted about the bread ration. 
bread came out of big ovens um, and they was, it was inextricable. It was part of the same industrial process that produced the beer. So there's your bread, there's your beer, and that's being presided over by either a god or the descendant of a god through, who, uh, through whom the god rules your city. So um, what I want to suggest is that while human society um, is not inherently theistic, doesn't naturally produce the idea of a god king, human civilization does. And by human civilization, I mean a social order that has the power to reach outside of its ecosystem into others, to pull in resources in the terms of people, tribute, what have you. That building, human, that building society upwards at a certain scale, um, there are so many efficiencies to incorporating a god into that, a henotheistic anthropomorphic god who sits at the center of the state. And so I want to argue that the state grows around a God, that the idea of the state is in fact what is divine. It is the surplus over and above the current ruler. It is the institutions, the traditions, the mechanisms through which rule takes place that are independent of an individual ruler. In this way, right, Genghis Khan created one of the greatest empires in the world, but only created a state partway through. There was no surplus, there was just the leadership. And lots of human societies exist where there isn't a need to explain surplus of traditions and infrastructure and ways of knowing. And so it makes sense that we're pretty used to grouping up and living together. We're evolved to do that. A certain portion of our population has restless leg syndrome, just so people will guard us at night. Uh, but the state involves a very particular historical trajectory. And the state encounters an anthropomorphic god almost immediately when it starts to come into being. All right, that's um, that's uh, my talk. Uh, questions, comments from folks. Uh, also, my computer here is being quite shitty, so uh, I can't read uh, the chat stuff that's passed already. So please re-ask anything in chat. Mm. My, my only comment was um, I recommend uh, a history of the world in six classes. It, um, it, it's a really, you know, it, it's a basic overview of beer, wine, distilled spirits, tea and coffee and Coca-Cola. And um, it was something I read in culinary school talks a bit about the uh, formation of, you know, what, the usage, like you discussed, of the excess grains and beer, but this fetal alcohol syndrome part has really intrigued me. I, you've talked about it. I heard you talk about it before, and 
Um, man, I got a guy, my, my storekeeper, dude, something about him, man. It just, it rings a bell because I can't give him, I can't tell him to do two things in a row and, and he just can't do it. And he's a smart guy. I mean, he, he, he's well read and, and, but, whew, but he's Filipino. So I wonder if his diet, you know, lots of rice. Well, um, FASD, you, you can still lose the lottery no matter how good your diet. And in fact, um, upper and middle class um, kids who grow up with FASD, um, there's too much shame on the family to diagnose them, right? So whenever an indigenous kid has autism, we diagnose it as FASD. And whenever a rich white kid has FASD, we diagnose it as autism. The problem is that treating people who have FASD using autism resources is a bloody disaster. I mean, they get an excuse that doesn't embarrass their parents, but it helps them in no way. The, the menu yeah. of brain dysfunction is so different. So right. there is a huge undiagnosed population on the basis of class yeah, in when our I, when society. I, when I first started my, this position and, and met him, you know, we started talking and um, he's, a, he's an army brat. And, you know, I'm a Navy vet and, you know, and so we're just, you know, talking about it and his dean of travel, he'd been in Germany, he's been all over the place, traveled with his dad. And he said, yeah, you know, my dad told me, don't join the military. I won't, you won't make it. I'm like, what? Yeah. I, I mean, it, it really seems like, like I said, his parents recognize again, Filipino. So, you know, the cultural things are a little bit different. Um, you know, going into the military, if you're Filipino, that's like a big deal. I mean, that, that's yeah. like, that's how you transition out of the third world for decades, because the United States Navy used to be the, the, the branch that um, we allow, we, we were, we allowed Filipino nationals to join the military. And it used to be, they came in and they were um, uh, cooks, cooks, um, and, and they just, you know, they just took care of officers country and, and they basically run all of the service side of, um, in, in particular, the Western fleet, you know, the Pacific mm -hmm. fleet, that, that's all the, the, you know, you talk about, you know, cultural mafia, man, that's a Filipino mafia that takes care of the supplies for the entire West coast, all the way to Japan. And that's um, a common story. The um, rural agricultural people joining the military as the way out of their community. That's, um, we were in the Dune course, I was talking about uh, Anwar Sadat in that context, that uh, his support base was those guys from Upper Egypt. Uh, so, yeah, it, it is interesting to remember that there are, there are things that the military demands of you that uh, it would be tough to pull off with a sequencing disorder. Uh, so, um, uh, you know, sorry, go ahead. Um, I, I'm sorry, it's what, what was the element in the diet of, of um, contemporary working class women that you said mitigates FAS? Uh, it's, um, it's a, 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 I don't remember all the things that choline appears in, but that's the choline. Uh, yeah. That's what I wanted to remember. Okay. Uh, and yeah. I, I wonder, um, I've got lots that I want to ask, but just right right off the top the 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 the, the war machine of uh genghis khan not having a state outside of its extension in space and time is really cool 
Um, do you do you make a leap to Trump and his acolytes? Because that's how I tend to read Trump. Yeah, I, I think um, you're you're right. Like that... he's, a, he's a war machine within the state, and that's. Well, I mean, so first of all, Genghis Khan does have to create the state. He realizes like there are all kinds of technologies he adopts, right, in the course of being Genghis Khan to get things done. And the state just has to be on the list of one of those technologies. I think that it is true that whatever is wrong with Donald Trump abridges his, it, 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 it impairs his capacity to imagine how things get done. Um, I think that Trump very much, I mean, to, I, I think I told you guys the Van Der Zam anecdote, right? That they effectively um, took the government of BC away from Bill Van Der Zam for two years and he didn't notice because he, um, he was just supposed to ask for things twice and then they'd get done and he never did. But I think that for a mind like Trump's or Vanderzam's, um, there's a part where they think they're speaking things into being. They think that the act of declaring a thing is the thing itself. Hmm. And um, I think that then, and I think that that's just a cognitive problem that Trump has. Also, um, if you start believing in conspiracy theories that further impairs your ability to imagine that because um, a feature of the modern conspiracy theory since 1321 has been that you can't ask implementation questions um, because it's assumed that the will of the malefactor is translated into real world events simply by existing. That there's, there's no question of like, well, how did they tell the Jews to do that? Or when did they tell the lepers to poison the wells? Or why did they all agree to do Those are not questions in conspiracy thought. And so I think that, that uh, one of the reasons that Trump was such fertile ground for conspiracy thinkers is that he naturally is deficient in that ability to think through how things happen. And the reason he's deficient is in part probably neurological, but in part because for most of his life, for things that are relevant to him, saying it and having it happen are the same. That, uh, you know, uh, John Mulaney was talking about um, trying to write a Saturday Night Lights live sketch with Mick Jagger. And Mm. he said, you know, well, is Mick Jagger nice? Well, no, maybe he's nice for being a billionaire who people cheer for wherever he goes. You know, he's been just walking into stadiums and having people cheering for him for 50 years now, and he has billions of dollars. So Mm. for that kind of person, he's pretty nice because um, he just holds out his hand and he says, Coke, and there it is. And... You know, Trump was the same, right? The Diet Coke button he had installed on his desk, right? Mm. That, um, that you just say a thing and then it happens. And I think that, and that, that's why Trump has this category of fake news, because outside of his experiential horizon, everything is just rumor. Whether it did or didn't happen can't be known. 
because what's relevant is within his experiential horizon and what's within his experiential horizon is how people report to him what has taken place. So uh, other questions, thoughts? Chris, you said you had a couple, so. Um, always with distinction. So I think you've described the, 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 the God King um, very well, but the, the reading describes uh, the steward king having, the, I like the ver the your original description of the way in which uh, there was this irony with the way in which human humanoid formed gods created a verticality immediately, and that when we had um, animal peer gods, there was a laterality. It was a lateral um, dis discussion or a description of of the world, um, but. The, the reading talked about steward kings having personal gods. And I, 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 where does, where does that fit into this? Do oh, you it's, it's simply a complication I, I chose to elide. I'm, oh, <laughs> I know, I know, I'm not trying to catch No, no, up, it's, 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 it's a good it's, question. So I elided that complication. Right. Um, so the, 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 the personal God of that, I mean, is going to be the ancestor, right? It's just that your experience yeah. of the personal God is, is, is different. There's a way in which, right, in some agricultural civilizations, this occurs um, at a whole bunch of lower scales as well. So in, yeah. a, in a henotheistic despotism, there's the one God. Um, right. in, um, but if you look at um, uh, Andean civilization and Chinese civilization, almost every macro lineage has its own god. And so there's always the great great grandparent in the basement, or in the case of the Inca Huacas, um, yeah. the mummy, uh, where you literally haul your grandfather out of the basement to go to important meetings with you. Uh, so there, so there's, um, so generally that's that the person that they're interacting with the same God they're representing, uh, there are variations on that. Um, they don't lead towards holy empires. So I, I've, um, I've kind of missed that, but for many of the sort of steward Kings, they their personal relationship with the ancestor may be an adverse one, but they still have to be able to hear their unconscious. And this is a period where people are still not habituated to the self narration of life. And so there's going to be size. So if your grandfather, if your great grandfather doesn't talk to you because he's a bastard, he said he wouldn't, um, then you've got to consult somebody. And uh, and, you know, the key thing is it has to be, have a, be an idol whose mouth is open for you. And there's a certain amount of plurality there. I'll just ask this to, and then I'll get off the pot. It, I, I, do, you, do, you, do you see this as being a secret behind Catholicism's um, pervasive influence in modernity? It still keeps the kitchen idols around. We've got Guadalupe and... It, there's no there's no end to its being able to absorb 
um, different different cultures, the sort of lesser deities within its remix. Yeah, I mean, I think there's uh, I think there's there's a lot to that. It's um, I mean, Catholicism has taken some weird uh, turns that way, right? The 20th century Roman Catholic Church has been so hostile to those gods and has decanonized a whole bunch of them, like the best ones. Like my favorite saint, uh, Saint Christopher, was decanonized a few years ago. Um, you know, and the grounds were legit. I mean, obviously, it's harder to say with a straight face that Saint Christopher was a nine-foot-tall dog-headed man who died at the age of 230 after losing a debate to the Emperor Dacius because he could only bark. Um, but so there's this Catholic modernist tendency that is really trying to eliminate this element. And it's going to be very interesting to see how contingent, how effective they are in doing that and how contingent their hegemony is on doing that. Because Catholicism is mainly interested now in competing against the things it's been losing to, not the things it's been beating. I think Catholicism feels reasonably confident that it has be beaten paganism. And it's now far more interested in competing against various forms of Protestantism and uh, against Islam. And that means really, really de-emphasizing or flat out denying those parts of how it worked. And if there's one thing Roman Catholicism has, it's one consistent historical trait is the ability to turn on a dime. Its only consistent historical trait is to it's its ability to become something else very fast and have everybody else fall into line. So I definitely think that, um, you know, uh, Catholicism initially outcompeted Protestantism and Sunni Islam in uh, the, you know, non-monotheistic periphery because it had that feature. But now it, now that feature is holding it back. And it might be jettisoned at any time. How, how do you think Catholic Church is going to deal with um, evangelical Catholicism? So in my neck of the woods, um, I come across that quite a bit, actually. Mm -hmm. and, and it's very, very strong. In, in, um, these, are, these are Latino you know, cultures in South, That's exactly. Central and South America. You are bang on, Edward. That is That's, exactly what it's investing in right now. It yeah. is it is Pentecostalizing. Uh, it's uh, now that the Pentecostals have got their Pentecostalism under control. They can be shamelessly copied, and um, this began as an organized thing through something called CCM, Catholic Charismatic Movement, in the nineteen sixties. And CCM used much more of the vocabulary of Catholicism. But now, uh, and this is, of course, especially true in America. And here we can't fast forward a bit into America. In America, uh, the idea of intersectionality is largely nonsense, right? Race, class, gender, they interact with each other, but they don't really intersect in the way Kimberly Crenshaw describes. One of the things about America is that race is the primary lens through which everything is seen. So because Catholicism is Latino in America, you can't become a Pentecostal as easily because even though 
Latino Americans invented Pentecostalism, um, that your Catholicism is written on the outside of your skin. Your Catholicism is in your accent. And so there are far more incentives to create forms of Catholicism that are not disruptive to the way race works in America. And so, um, and that's especially important because the Roman Catholic Church is the only, I'm not talking about the rules, but I'm talking about the on the ground experience. They're the only successful multiracial denomination in America. Every other denomination is so heavily raced that you leave, that you, right, Black Baptists and White Baptists are not in the same church. They don't attend the same church and they're not in the same religious denomination. So Pentecostalism, there are all these things that effectively imprison Latino people in Catholicism once they're in the United States itself. Whereas if they were living in Mexico or Guatemala or Brazil, they would join another church. Uh, but for instance, you know, how do you get the Latino vote out? Well, um, if you don't have a food service sector workers union, um, it's gonna be a Catholic church that's gonna get that vote out. Um, so there are all of these political and economic functions that are tied, to, uh, that, are, that, are, uh, that are based on racial needs that are then mapped onto religious denominations. And so you see, <clears throat> so Amer the US is the place where this attempt to integrate evangelicalism and Pentecostalism into Catholicism is going most successfully because there are such strong incentives for Latino people to stay in the Catholic church mm -hmm. and such disadvantages to leaving it once you're in the US itself. All right. Um, uh, Geneva, I, I didn't, I, your stuff has just been scrolling by my eyes. I haven't, I, I haven't read it. Um, please unmute. Where is that mute? Switch? There I go. There you okay. are. So do you want me to read it to you? Or? Uh, yeah, sure. Or, or just frame it, whatever you were, you were asking or saying. Okay, uh, well, first, uh, you said race is the primary lens. I disagree. I think gender is the primary lens. A lot of people grow up without ever seeing anything, anyone who is not of their own race, depending on how segregated their, their community is. And then um, in terms of Pentecostal, um, my aunt's uh, Pentecostal church was multiracial and uh, it had a black minister, which was quite unusual for white people in the South in those days. But this went on since the late 70s, early 80s, and they all tithed to Israel. And because Israel was to host the apocalypse, I guess, I'm not, I'm not sure, but um, the anti-Zionist group believe that this is terribly, terribly important. And Catholics and Jews were virtually non-existent in my community. <laughs> so they may have been influencing culture at some level, but not where I lived. Well, uh, Pentecostal churches, you're quite right, were originally racially integrated. And um, that, um, but they have come to conform to American religious standards much more. 
uh, over the past 40 years. So the first Pentecostals, um, that was their whole point, uh, was that um, this was this, this mixed congregation in Los Angeles at the beginning of the 20th century. And um, Robert Duval's film, The Apostle, is a great, uh, great story of um, the Pentecostal movement when it was a multiracial movement. Interestingly, um, there are still vestigial Penteco multiracial Pentecostal churches and they are um, the churches that are primarily targeted for mass shootings. Wow. Um, mass shootings uh, in America are typically of the most racially mixed crowds. So um, you would think that mass shootings would be focused on visible minorities. Um, you know, that it would be black churches and Latino churches that are shot up. But the schools and churches and concerts that mass shooters shoot up in America are ones where they are punishing whites for fraternizing with non-whites and vice versa. Um, that it's, um, that the, there's this submerged fear of miscegenation that is clearly conditioning mass shooting choices. So, um, uh, and even if you're not the target of mass shooters, um, obviously, um, when Pentecostals were stigmatized no matter what, there was no additional cost of being in a racially integrated congregation. But following the creation of Assemblies of God and the emergence of, uh, you know, Jimmy Swaggart and Pat Robertson onto the national scene, Pentecostalism took on this respectability which caused it subsequently to significantly segregate uh, along racial lines. Oh, so that would, the segregation then would have happened after my aunt got religion and... Yeah, the segregation would have got going um, between 1974 and 84. That's your oh. big pivot in the Pentecostal movement on race. Okay, yeah, yeah, I think... 99 is kind of the end of the saga. She got Alzheimer's then, but and this there is were, in Florida. Yeah, and as I say, there were these, these congregations, right? The, the, um, um, that mass shooting of that church in Texas was of one of the last um, rural Texan uh, mixed Pentecostal churches uh, a couple of years ago. So, um, and I guess that's what I mean by I'm, I think you're quite, I mean, I agree with you, Geneva, that in terms of like the architecture of the human mind, we're, we always see gender first. Mm -hmm. In terms of what makes America different from other countries, it is, there, it is the way that everything is cast in racial terms in public discourse. And there's actually a difficulty, you actually get angry at people when their race doesn't predict what they do. Um, Right, that, that, that our map of how Americans are supposed to act is so racialized that we've never generated a narrative for why the proportion of Black and Latino people who supported Trump increased oh, during his mandate, but the proportion of white people decreased. Because that's not the story we're trying to it's not a story that America's racing of social decisions uh, permits. 
And uh, so we end up, um, so even when race is a significant factor, we often don't talk, we don't talk about it if it can't be cast in fairly cartoonish terms. Mm-hmm. I know that uh, by the early 80s, the Blacks in Alabama were supporting George Wallace. He had formally apologized oh, yes. by then, and he was the candidate of choice. I was shocked, but I temporarily worked for his opponents. <laughs> well, what's really funny is that Wallace began as an integrationist. So mm-hmm. Wallace came to prominence in Alabama as a new dealer um, who supported integration. And then um, when he started reading the polls, he decided to become a public racist. Martin Luther King had a special hatred for George Wallace because Wallace wasn't a racist. He was a sociopath. That, uh, uh, that Wallace actually thought black people were equal. He just didn't care about people. <laughs> Human life meant nothing to him. And so he became the most successful segregationist in America. He got elected. He actually put in a lot of programs to help the poor. And people noticed this. Oh, yeah. No, Wallace is a very strange figure. We actually uh, did Wallace in um, our uh, book club in 2016. Um, There's a great biography of him called The Politics of Rage uh, by Dan Carter. Um, Yeah, so follow up with me. I've got scans of it. Uh, it's, uh, it was a very fruitful book to okay. read. Okay, I can see there's a group here that's been going on long before I knew about it. Well, <laughs> so I think I this is, these online courses are a great opportunity to sort of, um, well, first of all, our geographic scope has expanded in kind of a random way. Uh, but also there were all these people who had been going like Margaret Byrne, who's in the other course, she'd been faithfully going to the Surrey Los Altos group. And she thought that Los Altos Institute was about six people <laughs> until she started signing the online courses. And it's like, oh, oh, I, you know, and in a way I'm surprised too. I mean, I wasn't sure whether the Institute was real until pretty recently. So uh thought it might have been a figment of my imagination, but here you all are. And I dreamed I was dying I dreamed that my soul grows unexpectedly and Looking back down at me Smiled reassuringly And I dreamed I was flying Still 
Tomorrow's gonna be another working day I'm trying to get some rest That's all I'm trying to get some rest